This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Cisco's going to be pissed. Hello, everybody. I am Gepwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week, I literally only remembered what we were watching about five minutes ago because this episode <laughs> had so little impact that I like couldn't remember anything that happened until I looked at my script just now. Oh, but it has a, a creepy alien in it. Oh, it has a creepy alien. It has a lot of name recognition for some reason. Well, unlike like half the titles for the third season, this was a pretty short title. Title. Very, very succinct. So we watched The Tholian Web, which is one of the episodes that I'd really, really heard of but never seen. It's one that keeps coming up. I keep hearing the name everywhere. They mention Tholians in various places. They do stuff that is directly related to this on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. It is it is very, very well known. And I, f- I figured that it was because they did something interesting in the episode and I was wrong. <laughs> whoops <laughs> what fools we are well i i will counter that there is a couple things that are maybe interesting as far as science fiction at the time that go on but as far as our our, our more modern view of things yeah it's a little they have a couple of slightly interesting ideas and i'm sure the special effects were a little hard to pull off so i'll give them that <laughs> in fact uh special effects maybe took most of the budget for this one Possibly. <laughs> yeah, because uh, what, what's our guest star situation like? Oh, we have like half of one. <laughs> it's, uh, Lieutenant O'Neill are you talking about? or uh... No, the voice of the Tholian. Lieutenant oh, O'Neill yeah. shows up for like all of 10 seconds. <laughs> so this episode, before we jump ahead, was written by Judy Burns and Chet Richards. Uh, as a team, Chet Richards, this is the only writing credit. Apparently, he was just friends with Judy Burns, who, while this is her only main series Star Trek credit, did a lot of other contemporary writing of the time, including Knight Rider and Bionic Woman, and was even listed for giving script help in Wrath of Khan. It's also uh, involved in something called Star Trek Continued. Yes, the fan series that I don't know, I've never seen, I only ever heard of because people from this kept showing up on it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I need to check that out at some point. Yeah, I suppose I should check it out eventually. <laughs> so there's a lot of background characters, like you said. There's a Lieutenant O'Neill who I, I don't even remember. There's a lot of people who are background characters on the Enterprise who I think have shown up in other episodes as well who just basically stare or randomly attack someone for about 10 seconds and then are never seen again. Yeah, a lot of extras without any lines. So the major guest star, who's the person that anyone would have heard of in this, is actually voicing the alien commander. Her name is Barbara Babcock, and she was on... Uh, Hill Street Blues, and was a recurring character in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. I recognize her face, but uh, other than the uh, Dr. Quinn reference, yeah, I'm not familiar with her work. Uh, and she looks she looks familiar. People, have, She's one of those actresses you've seen around from these kind of things. And of course was in a bunch of movies with the word gun in them because it was the time. Day of the Evil Gun. Huh. Okay then. <laughs> Heaven with a gun. Hmm. <laughs> well, I feel like we're probably going to get through this one fairly quickly, and I don't know what we're going to talk about, but I guess we may as well jump in. All right, let's, let's, let's roll. Maybe we can uh, make that super interesting. The Enterprise is in search of its sister ship, the Defiant. The spaceship has a sister? Neat. <laughs> hey, is that, is that, that implies that there might be a, like a, a mommy spaceship somewhere. What's kind of interesting with this is... Uh, the way that ship names work, which I always found kind of fascinating, and they have tried to maintain the kind of modern naval tradition in Star Trek, is uh, the Enterprise is not a particularly special ship, because when you do a kind of uh, prototype ship, you name the prototype the whatever, usually like EX or experimental. Then 
the class of ship is named after that original ship. So since the Enterprise in this series is a Constellation class ship, there would have been a USS Constellation EX. Indeed. That would have been the original. And then any other Constellation class ship is just the sister ship of the original Constellation. So the Enterprise seems to be a very bog standard ship since every other Federation ship we have seen in this series is another Constellation class ship except for like one medical transport that showed up. and uh, Or like an automated ore transport or something like that. And that's barely Federation. <laughs> Which I do think is something that's interesting and they don't really too do much with because... Every other series, like Next Gen, it was the experimental flagship, largest spaceship ever created by humanity. In Voyager, it was the fastest, most experimental long-range scout ship they'd ever made. In DS9, it was the, you know, taking over this weird space station. This is the only Star Trek where they just had, this is a normal ship doing normal things. So everything that we run into in you know the original series Star Trek is kind of, I guess, just being done with standard hardware. Nothing really super special about it. Yeah. I mean, they don't do a lot with it, but it's kind of interesting to think about in the way they present stuff, especially comparing it to later series, because this is apparently what every one of these ships goes through. It's just kind of normal. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, brain parasites and, uh, you know, you know, uh, Klingon, you know, energy being fights and uh, all sorts of other randomness. Eric, let's just start standard Starfleet stuff we got going on here. Having brought that up, the area of space that the Defiant apparently was last seen in is literally falling apart at the seams. Whoops. Um, who broke who, who broke space time here? Spock has no idea why until later when he suddenly does, but that's another point. Here they find the Defiant, which is quite green. Yes, it's glowing, in fact. There was some, I, I, maybe it was just an easy special effect to do, but every time something is going wrong on this show, it's green. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, a uh, color that's natural in the world, but unnatural in outer space. True. So the Enterprise's equipment is not working so well because space is falling apart. So they're having difficulty scanning and navigating, and they are also losing power and quite possibly drifting. Basically, the whole ship is broke. You know, it's like, we just sort of show up here and just things stop working. Kirk, Chekhov, McCoy, and Spock don newfangled shiny spacesuits. They're quite uh, swanky. They are pretty swanky. They're a nice, weird, retro, retro 60s sort of design. They're way better than their old ones. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, the old ones are like more like just hazmat suits, I guess. <laughs> yeah. They beam over to the Defiance Bridge where they find the captain dead with another crew member's hands grasped around his neck. They leap to the conclusion that there was a mutiny, an unprecedented event in all of Starfleet history. Now, technically, uh, Ch- Chekhov says, says there's, yeah, this is uh, unprecedented. And, Sp- and uh, Spock's like, yeah, there's nothing that was recorded that says there was a mutiny. <clears throat> I- I'm the one I'm, I'm, I'm the one coughing here, not Spock. So. <laughs> they find no evidence of any mutineers aboard, however. In fact, everyone aboard is dead. Uh, even Selby? Um, yes. Peterson? Captain Hollister? <laughs> They're dead, Isix. <laughs> <laughs> They're all dead, Isix. Jekov and McCoy leave to explore the ship, finding more crew members who seem to have died fighting with each other. Chekhov gets a bit dizzy and seems to not be doing well, while McCoy finds a sort of fuzzy, transparent-looking man that his hand passes through. Wait a moment, is this guy a hologram? Or a ghost. Oh, a ghost. Or a ghost hologram. <laughs> Spooky ghosts? But he's dead, so he's like a dead ghost. He also finds the same thing is happening to a desk in one of the rooms and reports that the ship itself is dissolving. Wait, the whole whole ship's now a spooky ghost? Yes, ghost ship. It's a whole new term for the ghost ship. (laughs) But back on the Enterprise, the transporters are on the fritz. Of course, you know, they're just suddenly starting to break down, you know. Scotty gets it sort of working, but they can only beam over three people at a time. Unfortunately, there are four people on the Defiant, so Kirk orders everyone else to leave while he, you know, valiantly sacrifices himself and this is why you don't take captains on away missions 
Yes. <laughs> You're extraneous and, you know, you're just going to get yourself killed for no reason. After several attempts, they finally get them back on board the Enterprise. But when they try to beam aboard Kirk, it does not work. And the Defiant disappears before they can save him. Now, I, I will say that throughout this episode, there is a lot of uh, moments like this where they're sort of like being all anxious and tense, things like that. Some of them work pretty well. Some of them not so much. Um, this one was a little... In the mediocre range? One of the reasons that this episode took me about 20 minutes to write, which is about half as long as normal, is because 90% of this episode is people staring at stuff not happening. Yep. (laughs) It's like, why is it working? Why are we doomed? Why are we dying? This scene took about two minutes for them to try to beam them over, not beam them over, try to beam them over, not beam them over, try to beam them over, not beam them over. Oh, they finally did it. Yep. <laughs> we didn't we didn't need any of this. Yes. So it, it, it some tense moments like that is okay and some of it can be very good. This episode kind of overdoes it. Back on the bridge, Spock analyzes the situation and tells them that they may be able to save Kirk if they wait around for two-ish hours. Well, I guess we wait around for two-ish hours. Scotty's not sure about the power situation, but Spock explains that they can't use any of the ship's power at all, or it could destabilize the space that they're in, and Kirk will be lost forever. Yeah, I guess then we need to just sort of sit tight, and uh, hopefully nothing weird happens that will uh, screw over this entire plan we have that will make trying to rescue him pointless. Chekhov, at this point, echoing the entire audience, because they've literally explained nothing, is confused. (laughs) So I, I think uh, in some of my notes here is, you know, Chekhov starts bitching about this region of space. <laughs> so Spock explains that our universe runs alongside many other parallel universes and that sometimes those spaces intersect. Uh, this is happening here. So wait, this is like a hyperspace gateway? I mean, they've already been to, by my count, at least two, possibly three parallel universes. Indeed. So this is something they know. <laughs> Check off. Don't you remember like three months ago? <laughs> so the Defiant and Kirk got dragged into another universe, but since Kirk was being transported at the time, he might be okay. Then they just need to wait for the ship to emerge again. So we're just going to say he might not be dead. That's a good bit of um, logic there, Spock. Okay. Chekhov does not like this explanation, jumps up, smacks Spock around, and also anyone else who gets too close until they finally manage to knock him out. Chekhov, what are you doing? He was so full of rage. Same as everyone on the other ship. Oh my god. What, what, what? Also, he's just been kind of a jerk recently. Like, you know, Remember the last episode? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah. has been. Chekhov, maybe we should, um, you know, if we if we ever have like an animated spinoff, maybe we should leave, leave, leave you behind. McCoy goes to figure out what in the world is going on, and as another ship approaches, they identify themselves as a representative of the Tholian Assembly and claim that the Enterprise is in their space. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we haven't ever run into you guys before, um, so um, could you like tell us where the space is good, where the space is bad, and... Uh... I don't know, help us do this thing here. Spock explains that they are engaged in rescue operations, and if they wait around for about two hours, they'll see the ship that they're going to save, and then they can all be on their way. The Tholians agree, but are like, if you're lying, we're going to shoot you. So they have one hour and 53 minutes to figure this stuff out. McCoy spends his time trying to cure the crew madness and is attacked by his assistant, but Nurse Chapel saves him with a tranquilizer. You know, it's kind of crazy that there's just all these tranquilizers just sort of floating about that anyone with, like, basic medical knowledge can just sort of knock people out and it's no biggie. I mean, it seems like a particularly good idea given the number of times it's saved someone. But, I don't know, I I don't think I'd want to be on a ship where people can just knock each other out like that constantly. Back on the bridge, it's been about two hours and Spock readies everyone to save Kirk, but nothing happens. Oh no! Wait a moment. What about all that stuff about, you know, manipulating the local space-time with our engines and things like that? These Tholians, hmm, maybe they... Maybe they've plot inconvenienced us. Yes, the Tholians showing up has thrown off his calculations, which is bad because McCoy tells him that this madness stuff is not actually anything that's being transmitted from person to person. It's simply a byproduct of being in this unstable region of space. So having space-time kind of warped in a weird way is just sort of rewiring our brains? It's bad for you, one would assume. The longer they stay here, the worse it's going to get. So basically we're suffering from plot radiation poisoning. Yep. 
Plot radiation. It's the opposite of plot armor, I guess. Yes. <laughs> things are just bad, and things will and it'll just keep getting worse until we solve problem. Then the Tholians attack. Spock tries to talk them out of it, but has to fire back and disable the ship. But now the power that they used is uh, fused, and they can't do anything because the ship's broken. Well, um, that sucks. I guess we're going to all be driven mad, and our uh, ship's going to get pulled into another dimension then. McCoy gets really angry that Spock did so- something. <laughs> Would you want him to do, Spock? Uh, McCoy, uh, nothing? <laughs> I mean, he's probably angry because of the space madness, and they do say it later. But this entire episode is like, why did you do that? We, we were being attacked. Yes. <laughs> First I was trying to save Kirk, then we were being attacked. The, the situation kind of evolved, evolved naturally. Yeah. Oh, McCoy, just chill out, man. <laughs> Basically, McCoy just questions every command decision that Spock makes for no reason. Just then, two more Tholian ships arrive, this time staying outside of weapons range because they, I guess, are no match for the Enterprise because the other one got blown out of space pretty easily. Now, now I would like to point out that the uh, something kind of amusing about the uh, uh, the effects of the, 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 the when the Enterprise knocks the other one away. It was like zap 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 at the shields and it's holding steady and suddenly its shields fails and it suddenly goes flying fleet like like someone flicked it away it was just <laughs> kind of amusing but anyway yeah, I guess back, it back shows you how shields work yes <laughs> the tholian ships begin dragging a glowing line around creating a lattice work around the enterprise spock doesn't know what it is but it cannot be good i i don't know i have a bad feeling that ships named enterprise will be gotten behind weird barriers that have very similar patterns Multiple times in the future. Spock holds a memorial ceremony for Kirk, which McCoy is angry about. One of the crewmen goes crazy during the memorial. Spock tries to get back to work, but McCoy insists that they need to go to Kirk's quarters to look at his last orders they're supposed to view in event of his death. Okay, um, kind of in the middle of something, but I guess we can go do this. Spock finally relents, but once they get to Kirk's quarters, McCoy goes, he doesn't care about the orders. He just wanted to see what Spock would do, because I don't know why manufactured Discord, apparently. <laughs> I At this point, I'm just like, all right, Spock... I think you're well within your rights to just start ignoring McCoy. <laughs> Spock turns on the last orders anyway, and Kirk basically tells them to get along, stupid. <laughs> Spock sh- should have said, you know, it's like, well, that was an obvious order to give us as our last, as his last order. So let's actually follow it, shall we? <laughs> yeah, he gives kind of a speech thing about how Spock's a good commander, but he needs to lean on McCoy because McCoy's instincts are good, and McCoy needs to trust Spock to be a good commander and support him as captain, even when he thinks he's making weird decisions get along you two uh, this embarrasses them both into awkwardly apologizing and going off to save the ship all right now that we've gotten over our weird interpersonal drama let's go save the day her is getting ready for bed in her room when suddenly she sees kirk floating in her mirror I just, he does occasionally yeah i mean it, i wouldn't put it past him <laughs> she runs out to tell spock but mccoy finds her first and thinks it's just part of the space madness and takes her into sick bay well, at least she hasn't tried to, like, punch in the face, McCoy. Though you kind of deserve it right now. More crew go crazy and attack each other. Scotty keeps repairing things. McCoy's trying to find a cure, and he's getting sort of closer, but not really. That's about it. Yep, just we're tech-teching the problem here. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> Eventually, Scotty also sees Kirk floating around the engine room. He reports this to the bridge, and... Spock thinks that everyone's just hallucinating because they want to see Kirk back. Then they all see Kirk floating around the bridge. Well, um, I guess we're all hallucinating now. Maybe we should all be confined to quarters. <laughs> McCoy does go back to Uhura and let her out of sickbay, telling her that she wasn't crazy after all, so that was nice. She's not going to just be tied up for no reason now. Spock calculates that their phaser blast literally cut a hole in space. And now Kirk is sort of free-floating around because he got separated from the Defiant, and he's also running out of air because all he had was a spacesuit. Did, didn't uh, didn't they say that Kirk had like three hours of air left, and then you know he ran out of air an hour ago? Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this uh, Kirk has been thrown forward in time an hour or two, maybe. Hmm. Maybe. Scotty thinks that they can get their transporters working again by the next time he appears, but it'll be cutting it really close. They also won't have full power. McCoy shows up with a bottle of something, 
It's apparently nerve gas that the Klingons use, but if you mix it with alcohol, it cures madness instead of killing you. It only kills your brain a little bit. <laughs> Scotty immediately drinks it and takes the entire bottle off to his quarters. Spock is very suspicious that McCoy is trying to poison them all until McCoy drinks some. I would have been as well because he's acting weird. Yes. <laughs> they head back to the bridge where Chekhov is back and all cured up. Kirk appears on the view screen. Spock orders Scotty to punch it, and they are suddenly elsewhere. Yep. Apparently, space was so unstable that when they turned the ship on, it sent them several parsecs away and free of the Tholian trap, never to be mentioned again. Things just sort of happened at this point. <laughs> they also somehow dragged Kirk along, so they now can transport him aboard. So all of this seems just incredibly lucky? Convenient. Convenient. Contrived. There is the word. <laughs> Later on, everything's back to normal, and Kirk asks about how much Spock and McCoy fought when they thought he was dead. They go like, us? No, nothing at all. And he goes, oh, okay, well, I guess my last orders were useful to you. And they go, oh, we didn't have time to look at that. Ha-ha, <laughs> 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 yeah. it's hilariously joke ending, I guess. Hooray! Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. The end. The end! <laughs> This is this was so I don't know, this whole thing was very nonsensical and I don't know what to make of it. Well, I, I will say that they were trying to have an episode that was very much exploring the interactions of McCoy and Spock, but they don't pull it off well. Well you can't really have an episode that is hung on the interactions of two characters when you have explicitly stated that one or both of them is being mentally affected by the environment. Indeed. The, this is a moment to maybe better explore the internal workings of the characters as opposed to their you know, interactions, because their interactions are going to be uh, slanted by this uh, weird space effect. But uh, the, the internal stuff, uh, you can, you know, it's like, okay, someone's it's like, I know this is coming over me. How do I sort of fight that? We've already had stuff similar to that before. Uh, I think the you know the you know all the way back in the naked time, uh, where it suddenly it's like oh, Spock's having this sort of I need to like remaster myself because I've been being uh, you know uh, influenced by this uh, uh, disease stuff here. But you know, we don't really get much of that here. Yeah, and Spock is apparently immune. Maybe, <laughs> possibly. They don't really specify. Yeah, he does seem a little, um, I guess, more put off than usual, but that might also just be because McCoy's bug bugging him so much. I'm also really curious what the people who wrote Star Trek, and this is just communal, because it's happened in several different episodes written by different people in different seasons. What did people think, or what did the show Bible say proper command decisions were because every time they put spock in command he makes very normal correct decisions about what to do given extreme situations that usually save everyone yep. yet he is constantly criticized for making improper command decisions i think some of that especially mccoy's case is more he's just kind of a bigot and so he's going to give Spock a hard time where he wouldn't give Kirk the same hard time for the same decisions. Yeah, which is not like, they're not being very clear yeah. <laughs> on whether we're supposed to think he's making bad decisions in this episode. Probably not, but in previous episodes, we're obviously supposed to be siding against him. Yeah. And I, I suppose it is something about like just trusting someone other than than the captain but that would only make a sense if you like did another did an episode like like they did in uh next gen the disaster episode where someone who doesn't have any command experience is suddenly the highest ranking officer and you have to figure out how to trust them in command this is someone with a ton of command experience who is the second officer on the ship and so they have already had the training, the experience, basically everything they need for this to work out. Yeah, like taking over when the captain is incapacitated is literally their job. Yes, <laughs> but just no one likes it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this is such a confusing decision. It just keeps coming back and it's just unsettling, I guess. 
I think it shows this interesting dynamic that I would definitely need to do a bit more research on to be able to comment on more fully, but it it always strikes me that they they have like legitimately praiseworthy representations of race, especially given the 60s by just having a diverse crew that no one comments on. And I saw someone mention that in a later episode, um, they they have like a character from history pop up and they make what they think is a racially insensitive comment and everyone's confused because racial insensitivity just doesn't exist anymore, which is an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But then they keep showing they keep showing racism against Spock and other non-humans, but unexamined racism. It's just yeah. there and no one seems to care and it's normal and expected. The I, I guess the trope is often referred to as fantastic racism, that because these are not humans hating on other humans, that it's okay for some reason. Yeah, but you're you're supposed to you're supposed to use it to show how stupid racism is. Indeed. You're not supposed to just be like, well, it's fine now. This is a great opportunity to sort of explore, you know, this sort of, this, this, this our, our own biases that they do evolve over time. We, you know, there are things that people get, you know, you know, don't like each other now that no one would have thought of the th- think about, you know, a few centuries uh, back and things from back then that, you know, are much less cool about uh, hating on people about. And the people's sort of perceptions of each other evolve. And even if inside hum- the human race, we've managed to solve all our internal uh, bigotries amongst each other, the fact that they still have this bigotry to outsiders, you know, you know beyond the species is quite telling. It, it suggests that, you know, the, you know, the human race in Star Trek is not as highly as evolved as they like to pretend they are. Well, what you kind of get to inevitably if you say that you've changed the society, but many of the problems still exist, is that the problems are just innate instead of societal. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we'd be kind of remiss, even though we've talked about it a couple times before, to not look at the madness as disease to be afraid of idea again. Except yeah. this one's interest more interesting because they're not doing it even as they're not doing it as a communicable disease in this. It's still something to be afraid of and some weird like you're just going to snap and start randomly attacking people. But this yeah. one's a complete environmental cause. The proximity. It's like a, a beacon of madness as opposed to uh, something you pass on. You go there, go there, bad stuff happens. They at least don't fall into what you'd get in some modern tropes where you talk about why some people are affected faster than others. I guess it was kind of an interesting choice that they had some people like sort of instantly being influenced by it, but others, you know, holding off for quite some time. But, uh, you know, I did, uh, didn't mention in the episode, but they're going about the, uh, uh, on the Defiant, there was like one scene where they actually went into the, uh, the sick bay and there was a bunch of people who were, uh, were strapped down to the, the the beds, and then we see that very much the same thing happens on the Enterprise later. Uh, that there are sort of various stages of uh, you know, groups of people are kind of you know being affected by it, and the crew is responding you know in a very similar fashion between the two. Well, they did some good foreshadowing earlier, and then just I don't know ignored it <laughs> later. <laughs> like it was it was good setup. I still don't understand. I mean, I think the main criticism that I would have of the episode plotline overall is is what were the what were the Tholians doing there? Well, I think that they they're... didn't serve any particular purpose. Well, they they showed up originally because uh, they want to you know like you're in our territory, go away. Um, but after that, they are just sort of this background threat that if they succeed in building their their barrier, their web thing, that the Enterprise will just be sort of trapped there and, I guess, going slowly bad. Yeah, but the weird thing is they they keep doing this. They keep stacking clocks. Yep. Because you've already got that they want to save Kirk. And you could have had a ship show up. You could have had the Tholians show up, go, you're in our territory. You're like, oh no, they have disrupted the thingy and now it's harder to save Kirk. Mm -hmm. And then... They need to repair the ship, which is why they're stuck there. But they already have that if they don't repair the ship, they're going to all go mad and die and possibly dissolve like the other ship did. It sucked into a whole other universe or something like that. Yeah, and since repairing the ship is the thing that also gets them out of the web, 
it it doesn't really affect anything. Yes. It's like, well, this will solve all our problems, so let's just do that. <laughs> so yeah, it is very there's definite levels of uh plot redundancy here. You know, topical contrivances. Uh I I will say though that the 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 building of the web was kind of interesting because this is like when the first times you in science fiction you really see uh folks thinking in a very three-dimensional sort of pattern where it's like yeah we're going to wrap this thing around your entire ship not just make a circle and hope you don't go above it that is true so i'll give the props to that odd though how long it takes them to make the thing because this is this is completely ineffective against anything that's not already disabled i guess in some ways it is sort of like uh you know spiders cocooning up uh, their prey yeah you know, the, the enterprise has been disabled and now we're just gonna wrap them up and then we'll uh suck out their insides later <laughs> <laughs> so of course they're all gonna be i guess have killed each other by that point but eh, you know it just makes it easier to deal with i guess i will say i'm running into a weird problem with this episode because like i said i was i was gonna talk about the madness's disease idea that they had but that all they did was say well it's an environmental cause that's causing some weird neurological effects which happens we have that now like radiation certain kinds of toxic chemicals things that you might work with can cause weird neurological problems so Okay, they did that. They're not making madness into this weird thing. They're just showing it affecting different people and making it a ticking clock. So they're simultaneously, like, not doing anything interesting and making the episode kind of bad, but not making any major mistakes that you can talk about. Yes. (laughs) Overall, they've made something so innocuously bland that it's very difficult to figure out what to comment on. (laughs) But uh, the the beige year is later, though. (laughs) But yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. There is a lot they have sort of touched upon, but I've just been playing it safe this entire episode and, and then adding filler. <laughs> I think the particular thing that they've wanted to hang the episode on is the idea of trusting each other. Indeed. And I don't have a lot to comment on on that because like, I'm sure that there's a lot of things around trust that you could bring in. But the only particular question that you have in this entire series is why is this crew of people who work together every day and whose lives literally depend on each other so distrustful of everyone around them? It's a good question. Uh, Maybe there's a whole bunch of other adventures where everyone's just constantly backstabbing each other for no reason. I feel like there's just a particular thing, and I've heard some people talk about this, like, just randomly, because as we record this, we're still in the beginnings of the... uh, coronavirus panic that's been happening Mm -hmm. this is not coming out for several months so who knows where we'll be by then but hopefully better yes hopefully better or alternatively i'm going to build a spaceship but i heard some people talking about the uh, pandemic movie the other day and they were saying that there's something very nice about having a story that is about competent professionals doing their job well in stressful situations indeed I feel like there's a few movies that do that very well and a couple of shows. And that was basically the entire thing that got me into Star Trek originally was watching Next Generation and having it just be a ship full of competent professionals who get along well and do extreme things. It's it's sort of the, I guess, iconic interpretation of that idea that these are people that are literally the best of the best put together to solve uh, kind of a, you know out there problems uh, to overcome you know adversity that might you know not necessarily be uh, able to be handled by uh, you know uh, most folks and it's you know it's, it's kind of cool that yeah that, that even still they have troubles doing that occasionally because some of these problems are just so out there yeah and i think there's just something to be said for that and it's really sad given that we've gotten like in the in the interim after after like we started moving on to other star trek series we got like apollo 13 which is a very very good movie about people who are the best at what they do trying to save people in a horrible situation i would say the same thing with the martian yep and it's just a genre of sci-fi that we've gotten a few really good standout examples of but for some reason they've just not gone back to it on 
Star Trek or even on kind of the sci-fi television level. <laughs> I wonder if that that lack thereof is maybe is influenced by my own uh, creative works. Uh, the novel I'm trying to get uh, an agent for, uh, uh, for, uh, for instance, uh, a friend of mine has uh, read part of it and he's like, you know, it is a little weird that you have a, a, a story here that seems to be uh, full of people that are basically Sherlock Holmes levels of competent. <laughs> like, well, they are. Sp- you, you don't really just put random people into the situation. So it kind of makes sense they be competent. <laughs> yeah. What is someone like McCoy even doing in space? No, no one else was available. I mean, he's kind of the embodiment of this trope. Maybe that's something to mention. Is <laughs> we have this weird trope, especially in medicine. It's something that people like advocate actively, even in the real world, not just as a TV writing thing. That it's better to have a medical professional who knows what they're doing but is a jerk. Uh, you know, uh, specific skill over bedside banner. Which we hit a lot. We hit it with that, and we hit it a lot in uh, something like the computer programming sort of Silicon Valley type world. I think you get a little bit of that with engineering, even though they're forced to work together a little bit more than some programmers are. So you'd get it slightly less because you have to be at least tolerable enough to work with one other person sometimes. Yes. Uh, Physicists uh, have a little bit of issue with this you know, unpleasant uh, jerk uh, professors occasionally as well. And it's it's one of those things like it works for some people, but everyone else just kind of loathes them. (laughs) Well, you have this interesting problem because like in medicine, especially we know we have the research to prove that having a horrible bedside manner and being a generally unpleasant person has negative consequences for patient outcomes. It's just bad for people. So my doctor is kind of an asshole and he stresses me out. This is probably not the situation, yes, the, the, pr- the proper situation to be stressed out in. Uh-oh. And you get to know other things as well. And I think it's something to talk about with how weird they are on this show about collaboration and cooperation and trusting each other. Because, like, if you have someone who's a complete jerk who's trying to work in any situation, they're not getting along with people. They're losing a lot of productivity. They're not working on the team any amount of like specific genius that you think you're getting from the super skilled person who's really good at their job is lost by them diminishing everyone around them's ability to do work indeed you might get a plus one from them but you're getting a minus one for everybody else (laughs) yeah so just i mean this this trope is weird and it's it's interesting to see how much we swung back because it's it's weird just watching this this old show particularly, but like any older show from this era or older, older shows, older movies. It is weird how inept your heroes are allowed to be. Indeed. And it's not like modern things where you will sometimes have an inept hero who like doesn't get stuff done very well or that's part of the joke or something this is like not only are they inept but the world conspires around them to make their ineptitude work it's everyone's now mr bean and the one competent character that you get in this show in spock who's not being inept and makes good decisions is constantly called a bad person for doing so because you are uh, less fallible than the rest of us that means you are by necessity evil or something i guess yeah it's very weird writing yeah and i don't understand i mean i suppose the 50s and 60s you had the big not only the large population boom from the post-war years you also had the massive economic boom from the post-war years but you hadn't quite gotten to like you know Somebody who's not a middle-aged white dude should be in charge yet. So you basically had to give every middle-aged white dude a good job. So you probably had a lot of inept idiots running around. And so I guess this is maybe just sort of seen as normal. Like, yeah, everyone's kind of bad at their job, but nobody really notices because it's everywhere. If you have to give every single person in this one group a job, you're going to be giving the people who aren't good at the jobs jobs over people who would be better just because they aren't in that group. So, so yeah, it's good to remember that this is uh, well before affirmative action and things like that. Where Yeah, I suppose it unintentionally describes the entire situation because you have like a, someone who's like 
definitely worse at being in command in charge but anytime he's not in charge and the person who's actually good at being in command is giving orders everyone hates him yeah <laughs> unintentional social commentary of the time <laughs> i mean i think you can only get the social commentary of the time because it was written ba- like mirroring what everyone grew up with indeed <laughs> uh now i'm having uh visions of that one episode of futurama where fry accidentally ends up in uh, los angeles like everyone's <laughs> running around here shooting each other, and the and the, and the you can't see it through the uh, the air. It's like, yeah, that's obviously what Los Angeles is like. <laughs> <laughs> why, why? What's up with the social commentary? Uh, this is just normal for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, faster than light travel? Sure, why not? All right. I mean, they do that already on this show, so. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I want to, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, draw a little bit of a circle around the their sudden teleportation at the end. They appear to have dropped out of the universe for a little bit in order to pull that off. So it's almost like they've traveled through hyperspace, man. Well, it's either that or your good old space folding idea, because they already said that space was weird and unstable. Indeed. So it's not exactly clear what sort of uh, FTL method that they pull off here. But it is, I guess, you know, kind of cool that they have more than just warp drive going on in, the, you know, in classic Star Trek. Yeah. Well, as I understand it, I guess for people who aren't as versed on the physics stuff, you have like kind of three very basic faster than light theories that you tend to work with in most science fiction. You have the hyperspace idea, which is the first one you mentioned, which is since faster than light travel is literally impossible. In our universe, you somehow move the thing that you want to move faster than light into a different universe. Usually when it's smaller. You can break the laws of physics in because they are different there. You know, the, uh, you do want to be careful. You don't want to end up in a universe where the uh, fine structure constant is a whole lot different. Otherwise, you'll just fall apart. And then you have the space folding, which is the other thing they might have done here, where through some mechanism, you fold space-time itself so that the actual physical distance you need to travel is shorter, so you never actually travel faster than light. The distance you had to travel just happened to be a lot shorter than it was originally. Ah, this is uh, also how uh, wormholes uh, effectively uh, uh, operate, where you are more just stretching and bending and twisting uh, the space-time manifold in order to link up uh, very different uh, points in space and time. And then you have the warp drive theory in this, which... um, is sort of described badly in most of Star Trek, but the general idea is you are sort of creating a bubble of space-time around the ship that can, you know, move separately to the way that the universe normally moves. Yeah, the uh, the in the real physics world, the uh, nearest I guess sort of description of is the Albuquerque drive. Al- Al- I can't pronounce that name properly. Uh, it, there, there's an A and there's some C's in there. <laughs> uh, but the main drawback to getting that working in the real world is uh, most of the theories that it, uh, make it work rely on things like negative mass or strange particles. Uh, and I'm not talking like strange quarks. I mean, like just really weird exotic matter sort of things. And so because we haven't really encountered any of those things in the real world, it's like these are a theoretical maybe, but we have no proof they exist at this point. So kind of stuck on make, uh, getting our, our bubble set up yeah i remember last year there was somebody really excited about trying to prove negative energy i haven't heard anything about that for a while so yeah they didn't do it apparently yeah. <laughs> but they were really excited they were like oh we sh- we recalculated something or other and it turns out it isn't going to take an infinite amount of power to bend space time maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe well, I have uh, heard that, uh, you know, several uh, uh, variations of the Albuquerque uh, uh, solution uh, that definitely reduce the amount of uh, nonsense you need to have, uh, you know, have been sort of uh, put forward. Uh, I probably should look this up, but there's also another version where, you know, you sort of set up a, I guess, a, a, a special highway, I guess, of devices in a, uh, in a path between two star systems that would sort of generate artificially the field as you are passing through it uh, without having to deal with negative mass. But there are some complicated engineering questions there that might not be possible still. So So generally, fast and light travel is still very, 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 very theoretical. It is one of those big 
maybe, but we need to figure out a lot more stuff to be sure that if it's if if it is possible that it is, or if it's not possible to you know fill in these gaps in physics and things like that. All right, we somehow managed to get like three or four things to talk about out of this episode, so I think it's probably time to move on to the galaxy's favorite game show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where our various contestants have been racking up all sorts of uh, points here in the various co- uh, contests and the demonstrations of their skill and madness here, because this is definitely one of those episodes where there's a lot of people acting and pretending they're mad. Anyway, let's get started here. Our first uh, uh, you know, uh, big-time prize is the Dimension Jump Award, which goes to Kirk the Defiant and the entire Enterprise are traveling through alternative universes because of reasons. What are they winning up with? They win the box set of Sliders. It's a very, very interesting sci-fi show we should cover at some point. But, you know, same thing. Hoping every leap will be their leap home. I really enjoyed Sliders. Uh, only saw, like, maybe the first or second season. Hmm. After that, it gets weird. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll it trust you. It goes on way longer than it has any right to, and they try to have a larger contiguous universe, and they change the entire cast by season five. It's like, where are we trying to get back home to? I don't know. Well, they get home, and then it's maybe not home, but then there's another like race of people from the world where Cro-Magnons took over who are evil but are like space Nazis, but they're all doing dimensional jumping stuff instead of space travel. It's very strange. I remember some bits of that, but I uh, definitely left it off before things got too convoluted there. Anyway, back to the awards. <laughs> <laughs> Our second one is the Everybody's Dead Day, which goes uh, a prize, which goes to the Defiant, because that's kind of how everybody be on board. How, what, the, what does the ship win, Gepwin? The ship wins, and I think most of Starfleet should win those AI cores that you just put standard on ships. The number of times that the entire crew dies, at the very least, you need some sort of rudimentary homing device on these things. Hmm, something to uh, maybe activate systems to sort of push it back home at least a little bit make you know put on a nice distress signal along the way our uh, third and final one for today is the space boot award which goes to the tholians for effectively trying to put a boot on the enterprise once it's clear that the uh, conventional fighting probably won't help here what do they win get one the tholians win the space cop award Fight the system. Boots are a really horrible thing that's controlling your means of getting the money that you need to get to pay the ticket to get the boot. And it's a very bad system, and we need to rewrite some of our traffic laws. I have to agree. So uh, fight the power and fight the Tholians in their space boot, in their space cop ways. That's all I got, Gapwood. Uh, Want to take us away? Yes, thank you all for joining us. And this show, this... Uh, I don't know. It's so this, bland we didn't even have good rewards, I think. This thing that happened. <laughs> oh. Yes, it's definitely a thing that happened. On the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo, yay! Alright, so... People who are paying attention will see that this was Watchers of Tomorrow episode 69. 69? Nice. <laughs> it's obligatory. What does that mean, Gepwin? That means that next week we are not continuing with Star Trek, which is going to be a weird, unpleasant, strange episode. Not not great. So we get another week before we hit that weirdness. <laughs> and instead, we are going to be watching a movie. Because if you're new here, every 10 episodes we take a break from whatever series it is we are covering to give ourselves a little bit of a rest and watch a film. Now, the last time we did this without a guest star, it was Izix's pick, and we covered 2001 A Space Odyssey. Indeed. Now, last time we had a guest star, so that interrupted our you know, planning cycle, but you should go back and listen to that one because it was very good where we yes. did Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. That was a fun one. Jesse, fantastic time. But since this is my pick this time, I'm going to pick what is, interestingly, a movie that I only saw for the first time last year, but very, very quickly became one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. Oh. And also the first animated movie that we are going to cover on this show which is 2006's Japanese sci-fi anime psychological thriller, Paprika. 
Uh, this is a film that I've only seen part of, so I only know bits and pieces of it. Um, so I'm yeah, actually if you've looking forward to this. If you only saw part of this, you must be very confused. Yes. <laughs> this uh, film was co-written, animated, and directed by Satoshi Khan, who did a massive amount of like very, very good uh animated movies and a tv show he unfortunately died in 2010 in his mid 40s so who oh. knows what else he would have come up with but yeah that's horrible yeah it is a complete tragedy given his filmography includes some of the greatest animated movies ever put to film so let's let's uh, check out one of those greatest movies ever put to film <laughs> yes paprika was one of his later movies also i believe one of the only uh ones you could call science fiction most of his movies are kind of in a psychological genre. Mm -hmm. But overall, very, very good. I would highly, highly, highly recommend that people try to check this one out beforehand. One, because it is a masterpiece of filmmaking, and hearing us describe it is not going to do it any kind of justice at all. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those films that I really should have gotten around, you know, uh, watching through the entirety of myself because. What I saw of it previously is like, wow, this is fantastic. The animation itself is worth watching, even if you don't care about the sci-fi elements. Mm -hmm. Like the film itself covers a lot of very interesting themes. If you, for some reason, can't find the film to watch, at the very least, look up the soundtrack on YouTube because it also has some of the best music of any original soundtrack I've ever heard. So uh, there's a feast of, of enjoyment to be had. Yes. So I'm spending a bit longer on this than I would otherwise because I just want to very much encourage that everyone go try to find this before next week's episode. Uh, if nothing else, because it is going to be basically impossible to summarize. Yes. <laughs> this movie deals primarily with dream logic. Indeed. It is a central theme and I either have to spend six hours describing every part of it or skip giant swaths of what's going on. So I think we're going to have our, uh, our work put in for us uh, for this then. Yes, unfortunately. So I hope that you can find this before next week and that you will enjoy us talking about Paprika next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. I'm excited. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow... Dream a little dream for me. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>